All right. Good morning, you guys. So uh, as everybody is greeting one another, kids, you guys are dismissed. And uh, youth ministry, so middle school, high school, uh, you guys can head out with Pastor Chris as well. And what a blessing to be able to pray for uh, Travis this morning. Exciting things I know are ahead uh, for him. That man's got a wonderful heart for the Lord, and it's going to take him far. I don't doubt it. So um, everybody else, if uh, we're going to be in Mark uh, chapter 11 this morning, and if you don't have a Bible, you're going to want a Bible. It's kind of a puzzling passage today. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hands and we'll get one into your hands. And if you need a Bible to take home, then feel free to take that one home as our gift to you. And if you don't like that one, let us know and we'll get you a different one. We just want you to have a Bible uh, one way or, uh, or another. Hey, I'm just going to uh, echo what Pastor Jeff uh, so eloquently announced. So this week is the beginning of the small groups. It's the beginning of regroup. Um, the sermon uh, discussion life group is continuing. But this is the week to jump in and get involved. And you can always add in later, but you know how it goes. If you don't start out, you're going to go, well, I kind of missed the first meeting, so I don't know if I should just jump in now. So just go this week. And if you hate it, then stop going. But you'll probably love it. I know all the groups are going to be uh, are going to be great ones. So again, men and women meeting in person on Tuesday nights, and then there's also an online uh, morning group for the men that meets on Wednesdays, and an online morning group that meets for the ladies on Thursdays. You can pick any one of those that uh, that fits your schedule, well, and your gender fits your schedule and your gender, and go to that one. So um, anyway, with that said, I just want to encourage you guys this week. Uh, the, the regroup meeting, study through the Psalms, is going to be a great one um, with, uh, with Pastor Jeff. And the one thing that we really try to do with all of our midweek groups is to get you guys talking, or at least to give you an opportunity to talk. On Sunday mornings, I know I do most of the talking, well, all the talking, actually. Um, but in the midweek groups, this is your opportunity to come together, where, whether it's the men's and women's small groups or it's the, the life group or even that midweek Bible study, the study through the Psalms, there's a discussion component available for all of those because we want to hear the way that the Lord is speaking to you and the things that he's doing uh, in your heart. So anyway, that's my uh, encouragement to jump into some of those groups uh, this week. So we have a great text today. Um, Matthew, or, sorry, pardon me. Yeah, I'll teach out of Mark instead of Matthew. But Mark 11 we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 26, but before we do, let's pray and just ask the Lord to, uh, to really bless uh, our time. So, Father, we do thank you for um, this place that you've provided, Lord, this time that you set aside, Lord, and, and uh, as Jason um, said this morning, Lord, I'll echo him, we are so thankful for this church family that you've provided us with, Lord, and that... Uh, as we minister one to another, Lord, and as we're ministered to by you and rooted and built up and growing in our faith, Lord, we, um, we thank you for that, Lord. And uh, we pray that as we go to your word this morning, Lord, we pray that that process would continue, Lord, as we continue to worship you, um, Lord, as we give you our attention and we give you our hearts, Lord, and we ask that the Spirit would speak to us, Lord, those things he has to say to your church today. We thank you, Lord. We ask these things and we praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Mark 11, we're moving on this morning, working our way through Mark's account, of course, of the life and the ministry of Jesus. And we remember 
And when we last left off in our text last time, in that first section of chapter 11, Jesus had just arrived at Jerusalem for what would be now the final week of his life, right? This Passion Week. And to which we said that Mark is going to devote a full six chapters of his brief 16-chapter account of his entire life, right? He's going to give six full chapters to these monumental events, really monumental in the history of the world as Jesus prepares in this week to go to the cross, right? The, the servant king that we've been looking at this whole time who would give his own life as a ransom for our lives. And last week we looked together at a very familiar event. It's that event that we call the triumphal entry. And we watched Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem on the back of not just a donkey, right, but a baby donkey, right, coming as a king, right, who came in peace to bring peace both to Jerusalem, but also to bring peace with God to all of mankind. And in doing this, we said that he was fulfilling one of the most specific, one of the most well-known of all of the messianic prophecies, right? In a very clear declaration, right? Clearly presenting himself to the nation as their Messiah, right? Fulfilling this specific prophetic sign to them. And if you remember, you may have thought it was puzzling, but we sort of stopped short in our text last week. We stopped about a verse short of what would be the natural end, both of that first section and the natural end of that first day, right? That first Sunday of the Passion Week. And we sort of stopped short. We did it actually by design because I believe that verse 11 is the verse that really kind of sets the stage for everything that we're going to see today. Because in verse 11 of chapter 11, what we read is that after he made his triumphal entry down the Mount of Olives into the city, so picking up right where we left off last time, it says next, and Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So when Jesus came into the city, Remember, the multitude is shouting, save now, Hosanna, right? And the multitude must have thought that Jesus was going to head straight for the fortress Antonia, right? This was the, the Jerusalem garrison where all of those Roman soldiers would have been uh, residing. Remember, the people were desperate for deliverance. They wanted the kingdom of David. They wanted the glory. They wanted the victory. They wanted freedom for Israel. And so, again, this multitude likely assumed that Jesus would just head right there to deal with the Romans. But instead, what does he do? He heads straight to the Jewish temple because he knows he needs to deal first with the Jews. Jesus heads right to the heart of the Jewish nation. He heads straight for the religious heart of Israel, right straight to the temple complex. Now, the temple complex at this point was this magnificent 34-acre compound. It was just the center of all Judaism, right? It was the largest enclosed sacred structure in all of the Roman Empire. And those who've studied uh, Herodotus said that if he were writing at this time, 
that he would have included the Jewish temple as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, maybe the eighth wonder of the ancient world, right? It was breathtaking to look at, constructed primarily of this imported white marble, and you can see it had this gold you know, trimmings all the way around the top of it. And it was said that as the sun would reflect off of the temple, there were times during the day when you couldn't even look at it. And from a distance to see, it was like a, a snow-capped mountain there that sat atop Jerusalem. Just the sheer beauty of this structure. And yet what we're going to see in our text today is that as Jesus looked at it, that he did not at all like what he saw. So in this very first, this verse 11 where we pick up, this is Jesus really surveying Israel's spiritual condition. And it's based in part that confirmation of what he saw as he looked around at all things. We're going to see in our text today what we might think are some kind of strange behaviors from Jesus. But to the contrary, we're going to see they're very important, they're very significant actions. In our text today, we're going to see him perform actually two more signs, but these are two more signs that actually signify judgment. Two signs that signify the judgment upon the Jewish people for their prophetic and their, their coming rejection of him. And the first one of those signs we're going to see is going to deal with their outward fruitlessness. And the second one of those signs we're going to see is going to deal with in Israel's inward corruption. And both of these signs that Jesus performs are pretty unique because they are not signs of healing or restoration or compassion or mercy. But these are sort of two destructive signs that Jesus performed. And because of that, they're kind of difficult for people to wrap their minds around. And yet they're both such an important part of really understanding, I think, his ministry to and his, his deep love for the Jewish nation. As well, I think these two signs provide us. They're just rich, I think, in application and they have a really important exhortation, if you will, to us as the church today. So here we have Jesus. It says here, right, at the end of the day on Sunday, he's exiting out of the city of Jerusalem. And interestingly, it says there, he sends the night in nearby Bethany. Now remember, Jesus, in the final week of his life, he never spent a single night in the city of Jerusalem until the night... He was arrested before his crucifixion, but instead he always returned back to Bethany. Why? Because he had friends there, right? Lazarus, Mary, Martha, their home was there, right? Maybe even some others who were friends of Jesus, but he always spent the night there amongst people who loved him in the midst of this unbelievable opposition that was coming against him back in Jerusalem in terms of the, what the religious institution was doing to him. So he spends the night, so he spends Sunday night, we assume probably in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And then on Monday morning, it says in verse 12, that now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. Now, some have suggested the fact that Jesus was hungry 
might actually mean that they didn't stay with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus because we know that Martha, there's no way Martha would have let him out of that house hungry. Right, Martha, right? She'd have been up early in the morning, scurrying about, feverishly preparing breakfast, right? Probably, you know, a griddle probably full of pancakes or, or whatever they would have eaten, right? It was actually, it was Charles Spurgeon who speculated that it was probably because Jesus had left the house so early because he wanted to have time with his heavenly father that he didn't take the time to eat at all probably left the house long before Martha even woke up. And I like that, right? I think that's probably right on the money. Jesus was so intimately connected to the Father through the Spirit because all throughout his ministry, we see him making prayer a real priority. It's these times of solitude, these times of reflection, these times of waiting on the Spirit's direction, just like we need. Jesus took those times, times of refreshing where he could be strengthened and equipped for what he knew was this ministry that lay ahead for him. And it was through those daily prayer times that Jesus heard daily what the real heart of the Father was. So just a quick encouragement as we start out. If you're looking for direction and you're looking for wisdom, get up early, right? Spend some extra time seeking the Father in prayer because it certainly seemed to work well for Jesus. So here he is. He's on his way from Bethany to Jerusalem. He's right here on the slopes now of the Mount of Olives. He's hungry because he probably skipped, he and the boys, right, probably skipped breakfast there at Mary and Martha's house. It says in verse 13 that seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Now, fig trees were very common, still are common in Israel. And they grow to these incredible heights, 25 feet, widths of 20 to 25 feet. And they just covered the countryside, especially in Jesus' time. And because of their abundance, figs were a staple of the Hebrew diet. So here's Jesus. He's hungry for breakfast. He sees this tree, and Mark specifically says it has leaves on it, which is an important detail for us to understand because fig trees apparently are unusual in that the appearance of the fruit actually comes before the appearance of the leaves. And so Jesus assumes that since this particular fig tree, it says is covered in these fig leaves, that it must certainly contain fruit as well, even though, as Mark specifically says, it wasn't the season for figs. Because something else that we can learn about fig trees, so the normal crop of big figs would have formed and ripened probably in late May and on into June, right? That's the, the main fig season. But the fact that this tree already had leaves was a sure sign that it was already bearing some fruit because fig trees in that part of the world would also produce kind of a separate crop of these small little edible buds, right? These small edible figs, and they would come early sometime in March. Followed by the appearance of these leaves in April, 
which is right where we are now, right at the time of the Passover feast. So all of this to simply say that this tree, by all accounts, should have had figs to eat, and yet it didn't. As we saw that Jesus saw, and it says in verse 14 that in response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again, and his disciples heard it. Okay, now this is the verse where this passage starts to get a little bit puzzling, right? And things start to seem a little bit strange. So what in the world is going on here? Now, plenty of people had suggested that Jesus was just hangry, right? He, he didn't have breakfast. He didn't have a Snickers bar with him, right? Peter and James and John, they hadn't hooked him up. And so he's taking his frustrations out on this innocent little fig tree. Now, I, I hope that it won't surprise you when I tell you that that's not what was happening here. There's actually a little bit more that was going on to the story. You wish that was what was happening here because we'd be done by now. But it's not. The truth of the matter is that this fig tree was kind of a hypocrite fig tree. It had leaves, right? It had the outward appearance of, of vitality and of health, but it had no fruit. And so Jesus curses it, and we're going to see in a few verses that it withers away. Again, this is one of his few destructive miracles. And people are puzzled because, well, you know, why would he curse the tree? Because the same power that he used to curse the tree, he could have given that same power to the tree, and it would have brought new life, and he could have had his figs. And yet... It's only when we consider the context, right? When we look at the time and the place of what happens here, only then do we really understand what's going on. Here's Jesus approaching Jerusalem. It's the last week of his public ministry to his people, the Jews. And I would suggest to you that Jesus is far from being hangry, right? Jesus is holy, and as he surveys the spiritual condition, as that's confirmed for him, that here he is now judging this hypocrite fig tree. But in doing it, what he's doing is he's using the fig tree as a living parable to teach us all a very important truth. Now, scripturally, historically, even, even presently, the fig tree is often a symbol of the nation of Israel. In the Bible, we see Jeremiah, Amos, Ezekiel, Hosea, Isaiah. They all liken Israel to a fig tree, sort of in the same way that the eagle would symbolize America, and I think the bear represents Russia. But So Israel is portrayed by the fig tree. Just like the fig tree here in the story, Israel, at this point in their history, especially speaking from a spiritual perspective, it had lots of leaves, right? The nation appeared to be very religious, right? We've got the, the temple worship. We've got the sacrifices. We've got all the traditions of Judaism. We've got the Torah. We know we've got Pharisees. We've got scribes. We've got Sadducees, right? All of these groups of religious leaders. And yet what they didn't have is any fruit, Jesus found no fruit in the land, right? So Israel had this big show of religion, but they had no real practical experience of faith that resulted or produced godly living in the people. And unfortunately, isn't this a picture of the church today? Because so often in the church, 
not this church, other churches, right? We see lots of leaves, but we don't see any lasting fruit. Sometimes we see ministries which seem to have all the bells and they have all the whistles and they have the lights and they have the flash and they have the latest and greatest and the biggest numbers and the biggest budgets. But all they do sometimes is produce followers that are a mile wide, but what? They're just an inch deep. And what we really want to produce in the kingdom is the opposite, right? We want to produce disciples. Maybe they're only an inch wide, but they are a mile deep and they're rooted deeply in the Lord. And of course, in our lives as well, right? Our lives, we can have all the pretty leaves for people to see. We can look the part. We can dress the part. We might even act the part of a really devoted follower of Jesus. But when push finally comes to shove, is there really fruit? Is there really anything that's nourishing that's coming out of our lives? Are there things that would really bless someone and sustain someone who's spiritually hungry and comes into contact with us? And we could certainly, we could spend all morning on a personal applications of this kind of an interesting event. But the main interpretation of this picture of the fig tree has to do with Israel. Because their time of judgment had come. And in fact, we've seen Jesus uses this example of the fig tree three different times with kind of three different twists but when we put them all together, we see that they are all very clearly linked and they give us this wonderful, this beautiful progressive picture of God's dealings with the Jews, which is well worth our time to really understand. In Luke chapter 13, he starts out with this teaching of the parable of the fig tree. He says this, Jesus taught that a certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that... You can cut it down. So the fig tree planted in the vineyard is the Jewish nation planted in the promised land. The man is God. The keeper of the vineyard is Jesus. And for three years, it says this fig tree has been tended, cultivated, watered, even as Jesus had been publicly ministering at the point that he told this parable for how long? Three years to the Jews, but still there had been no fruit. So God's patience, right? The patience of the man is getting exhausted. He says, look, why should this tree continue to just sap the nutrients out of the soil, cut the thing down? And yet the keeper of the vineyard pleads on behalf of the barren tree, just in the same way we see that Jesus lives to make intercession for us. The keeper of the vineyard says, look, I just need more time to give this tree, right? Give them more time to respond and to repent. And so we start into what would have been that fourth year of ministry, during which time we've seen Jesus continue to proclaim the truth and to call people to repentance. And yet we know it's right in the midst 
of that fourth year, right, at the three and a half year mark, right where we are right now in Jesus' life, here the Jews are going to rise up against him. The Roman soldiers are going to lead him to Calvary and crucify him. And as a result of their rebellion, we're going to see the Jewish nation is about to be cut down. So by the time we get here to Mark 11, also recorded in a little bit more detail in Matthew 21, the keeper had been given more time to care for the tree, but now the time was up. Right? The tree was just taking up space. It wasn't doing any good. It wasn't accomplishing its primary purpose to bear fruit. Right? The primary purpose of Israel was to be called out so that they could bear fruit to the other nations around them. And so we see now that the time of the sentence has come to be pronounced by the judge and the nation would wither when the sentence was finally executed 40 years later in what? A.D. 70, when Rome would come and march into Jerusalem and destroy the temple, slaughter thousands, and then scatter the people throughout the world. And at that point in A.D. 70, you all know, the nation of Israel would lose her identity for nearly 2,000 years as a people. Now, some people will wonder, was Jesus permanently cursing Israel through this parable of the cursed fig tree. Well, wonder no more, because I will tell you, he absolutely was not doing that. Not at all. Not in the slightest. And I can see you scratch. But Pastor Bill, like, look, it says right here in the text, Jesus says, let no one eat fruit from you, what? Ever again. And I would say, yes, it does say that in English. But what Jesus more literally said, which actually is sort of lost in translation, if you look at the actual construction of the Greek that Mark used, here's what Jesus said. I'll read it to you in two different literal translations. It says, and Jesus answering said to it, no longer from you throughout the age may eat any fruit. And his disciples were hearing. Another literal translation, it says that Jesus answering said to it, no more from thee to the age may eat or may any eat fruit and his disciples were hearing so the key obviously is that the barrenness that jesus predicted or even prescribed here against israel was to last how long only to the end of the age right because paul makes it as does the rest of scripture but the Apostle Paul makes it crystal clear in the entirety of Romans chapter 11 that God is not at all finished with Israel at all. Right? The whole world got the gospel partly because Israel rejected her Messiah. But one day, the nation of Israel, the Bible says, is going to have full inclusion, full restoration. And the Apostle Paul in particular was so excited as he thought ahead to the blessings that that day would bring. He looked ahead to this day of deliverance that would come. And Paul's conclusion to this whole thing, Romans chapter 11, verse 29, is he says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So God has made unconditional, he made unconditional promises to Abraham to bless and bring forth this nation 
and God will be faithful to fulfill them. And in fact, the third time that we see Jesus bring up this parable of the fig tree, it'll be just days from now during what's called the Olivet Discourse, recorded when we get to Mark 13 or Luke 21 or Matthew 24, and Jesus again is going to pick up this parable of the fig tree and he's going to use the fig tree as he details out God's prophetic plan for the future. And you guys all know the text, right? After he explains all of the events of the last days, all the signs and times of the age, including the tribulation and the second coming of the Son of Man, Jesus now uses this same parable as a predictor for when all of these things are going to come to pass. Here's what he says in Mark 13. I know I'm getting ahead of myself. I don't know what I'll teach when we get there, but I'll figure out something. He says, learn this parable from the fig tree. He says, when its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, all of those things that he'll predict, right, about the end of the world, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the door. So the preeminent the primary sign for the time that the appearing of the Son of Man is drawing near is the budding of the fig tree. And for so many centuries here, you know, the Israelites were scattered. This is God's covenant people that had no national existence until what? 1948. The first time in the history of this planet a nation that wasn't a nation became a nation again after 2,000 years, right? This time during which the Jews, like the fig tree, had been shriveled and withered. But since that time, right up until this time today, we see the Jews returning to Israel in these incredible numbers, and the nation of Israel is thriving in ways unlike any of her um, Middle Eastern neighbors. I, I love, it was Golda Meir who was the fourth, I think, prime minister of Israel, and she joked this. She said, let me tell you something we Israelis have against Moses. She said, he took us 40 years through the desert in order to bring us to the one spot in the Middle East that has no oil. <laughs> right? So what happened? Modern Israelis had to look past the typical way of building wealth in the Middle East, and they started to invest their time and their money and their energy into what was a pretty uncommon pursuit in that part of the world. They started to invest in technology and innovation. And as a result of that, what we find is that so many of the latest technological advancements in agriculture and in computing, medicine, biotech, telecommunications, military defense, they have all originated in the minds of the Israelis. And in fact, many of the world's largest high-tech companies, which are headquartered right here in our backyard, they are scrambling to establish R&D facilities there in Israel. Right, Just like Silicon Valley, there's a whole coastal plain of Israel that's been dubbed the Silicon Wadi. 
right? Some even say that it's giving our own Silicon Valley a run for its money. This is a statistic, it's a few years old, but it said that Israel attracts more venture capital investment per capita than any other country. And you think about the success of this country in spite of the fact that it is constantly plagued by problems from all of its surrounding Arab neighbors. And so we as Bible students, right, students of Bible prophecy, we look at all this and we see the fig tree is starting to put forth green leaves, right, which tells us that summer is near, prophetically proclaiming the very near return of Jesus Christ, who will one day then be acknowledged by them as their rightful Messiah and King. And so for us as Christians, if this new life seen in the fig tree is pointing toward and announcing the day of the second coming of Jesus and of Israel's blessing and restoration, how much nearer must the time of our rapture be? Seven years nearer, exactly. But, right, but there's such incredible hope there is that we find in the pages of the scripture if we just dig a little bit deeper. Because far from being done with Israel... Even now, we see God is doing great things in Israel. He's doing great things on behalf of Israel because he's simply preparing them to bless them. Preparing them to bless them with this full fulfillment of all of the promises that he made to them. And I know that there's some of you even here this morning that you are living in the midst of a, a, or a moment of kind of an Israel season in your own life. You're living in a time where you feel like things are just dry and barren and you are just waiting for these promises that you know that God made to you. Well, let me assure you, God is not done. God is not finished with your story and he will be faithful. You're gonna start to see that budding in your life just as we're seeing it in the nation of Israel, right? He who has begun a good work in you will what? He will complete it. But for now, here's Jesus standing here. He's on the road to Jerusalem. He's looking at this tree that's barren of fruit. He wasn't angry at the tree, but he's using it to complete this picture for us prophetically, right? He's judging this hypocrite fig tree because of that, the, that dangerous deception of this outward fruitlessness that he could see from his people. And now as he actually arrives into Jerusalem, we're going to see that second significant sign. Now he's going to begin to really complete the judgment practically, right? Because of the, the danger we're going to see of their inward corruption, Right, so look at verse 15. It says, so they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Now this whole scene may sound a little bit familiar, and it should, because Jesus opened his entire ministry with a similar sign. We only read about it in John chapter 2. Now, three years later, as he prepares to conclude his ministry here on earth, 
this temple had become, it was continued to be defiled, right? The money changers had straightened up their tables and scooped up their scattered coins, and they had just returned right to business. So right here now at the end of his ministry, we see Jesus cleansing the temple one more time. And isn't it just perfectly, it's a fitting bookend to everything else that Jesus did, right? As he cleanses this cluttered temple court because of the inward corruption that we know was there. And in part, this was just another very clear declaration if they had been watching Right? He, he made this clear declaration as he came into Jerusalem, but now this is just another clear declaration of his messianic credentials and his authority. Because the book of Malachi, which is the very last book at the end of our Old Testament, it leaves us with this specific prophecy that God is going to send the Messiah to purify the temple and the people. Right In, in Malachi chapter 3, it says, Behold, I send a messenger... And he'll prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now again, this prophetic passage probably sounds familiar. Because Matthew says that the first verse of that passage has already been fulfilled by John the Baptist. Right? He was the messenger who preceded, he prepared the way for God's Messiah. And if you look and you see all of these other words and other prophetic passages like Ezekiel and Zechariah, these were all very well known to the Jews to the point where there was this expectation amongst the Jews that one of the things that the Messiah would do when he came is to purify the temple. And so when Jesus follows up this triumphal entry, with driving out the money changers and the merchants, again, very clearly declaring, I am the Messiah of Israel. Not only the strong declaration about who he was, but that he has authority over everything that's going on there. I love the way one historian put it. He said there was an expectation that the Messiah would cleanse the temple, both approving it after the pagan conquerors, remember Antichus Epiphanes and, and Pompey had both defiled it, but that he would also uh, cleanse it from the false worship and practices of God's own people. And that is right at the heart of the issue here. It was all the religious business of the religious leaders. Because they had turned that whole outer area up there on the temple mount that whole outer area that you see surrounding the temple itself right they had turned it to this place where where foreign jews who were coming to visit the temple they could exchange money they could purchase sacrifices and it may have started out as a service as a, a convenience Maybe for pilgrims who were coming from other places, instead of dragging their sacrifice along with them, they could purchase it when they got there. And yet it had sort of evolved into this very lucrative side business. All of a sudden, the animal that you brought to sacrifice, the priest would say, unclean, but you can purchase one right over there from my friend. 
right? And they were charging exorbitant prices. And they had this monopoly on these approved animal sacrifices. Again, one author points out that a pair of doves, now the doves, a pair of doves were the sacrifice that was prescribed that the poorest of people could make. If you couldn't afford a, couldn't afford a lamb, you could just get two doves. But it said that a pair of doves could cost almost 20 times more inside the temple as outside the temple, right? It's like that $12 bottle of water that you got to buy at Disneyland because you just need something to drink. And what historians tell us is that Annas, who was the former high priest at the time, that he was the manager of this whole enterprise assisted by his sons, so what they'd done is they'd changed the character of the temple. They had taken the most holy place in all of Israel and they had turned it from this sacred place of meeting with a holy God into just a place of corrupt commercialism. So this was Israel's inward corruption, right? Corrupt from the inside. They hadn't been corrupted by the influence of all of the pagan nations around them. They were being corrupted by the very leaders from within them. And although Jesus had already dealt with this before, here he is having to deal with it again. And I think in that, unfortunately, there is not just an application here to Israel nationally, but it should speak to us personally, right? Paul says very clearly, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? And there are times when the Lord has to come into my life and start tossing over some tables in my life. And although I wish that this were a one-time thing, it's not, is it? Right, just when we think that we've learned that lesson, suddenly we find all that old junk is starting to get set back up in the temple of our hearts. And what does the Lord have to do? He has to come in faithfully and he has to deal with it radically. And so there are searching questions, right, for us as individuals, like what are the things, right? If your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, what are the things that the Holy Spirit wants to come in and overturn? What are the tables that he would turn over in our lives? Right, just now, I have my own list, and you don't need to know about my list. Trust me, it's plenty of long lists. There's lots of tables that keep getting set up in there. But what are the things in your life that the Lord would drive out and that He would overturn? And, and these things, I think, should be challenging for us as we look at this. And of course, as things go with us individually, so they go with the church collectively. Right? Peter says that we're living stones and that we're being built up into a spiritual house. And this whole passage, especially now as we go ahead, it's going to show us some characteristics that Jesus is looking for us collectively as his church corporately. And when we consider, so here's what Jesus said as he tossed these tables, and they're going to give us some real insight because what was happening here was about much more than just dishonesty, but what this was really about was the fact that it was actually preventing access to ministry. It says in verse 17, then he taught. Now, first of all, I just want to point out 
This is the way that Jesus operates in our life. First he tosses, then he teaches, right? He'll toss some things up in our lives and then he'll take us right to the very scriptures that show us why things are being tossed up. Right? So then he taught them, saying to them, is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. So most obviously what the religious leaders has done is they turned this temple into something it never should have been, right? A den of thieves. If you've ever seen one of those old westerns, of course this is the place where the thieves would count up their loot and, and kind of divide the hall after they had just ripped off a train full of people or you know, a bank in a town. And it was sometimes it was a cave in a hill or, you know, it was an abandoned shack or something that they would hide out. And what's interesting is that in the original Greek, it's an even more colorful, colorful picture because it contrasts the house of prayer, not just with, bye guys, good to have you today, go move those mats. They have an excused uh, leave early today. See you guys. It wasn't just contrasting it with a den of thieves, but more literally what we would call a pirate's cave. Right? So the image here, as the Lord looks down from heaven on the religious leaders, right? And some of these people who were using the temple and they were using the Jewish religion to cover up and to actually conceal their sins. Right. The place that God had ordained that he would meet with his people had been turned into something very dark. The temple itself had become, you know, like the shelter for all of these corrupt practices. These thieves were actually hiding in there, right? It's bad enough when you went to Jerusalem, as you came up that dangerous road from Jericho to Jerusalem, you had to travel in groups because there were these dens of thieves that hung out there. All of these different caves where these bands of thieves would hide. And so Jesus is saying here, look, it's bad enough that you've got to deal with that, but now you've got them right here when you get here on the Temple Mount. And so he's quoting here from Isaiah 56. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And certainly, of course, we see first off, Jesus calls the temple, what? My house. Again, clearly, of, no, Jesus never said he was God. Well, here he pretty closely says he's God, right? My house, another declaration, right? A demonstration of his messianic credentials. But there's also much more to this reference if we dig just a little bit deeper. And the key, I think, is in those three little words that follow that. He says, it, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, what? For all nations. Now, the ultimate fulfillment of this is coming during the kingdom age when Jerusalem truly will become the worship center of the world and when a brand new temple will again be built in which all nations will come and worship the rightful king in that temple. But there was a present fulfillment of this very same purpose in the time of Jesus in that the temple was to have been the place that made God available to everyone. And you Bible students in here, you know that that outer court of the Gentiles, that was called, the, the, that outer court of the temple 
was called what? The court of the Gentiles. And the whole purpose of that whole outer court was to give all the outcasts or to give the foreigners the opportunity to come into the temple area and to learn from Israel about the true God. And yet what was happening is that all of this activity for all the buying and the selling that was happening right there in the outer courts made it impossible for any seeking Gentile to actually come and to pray. And one author, I think, paints a very profound picture for us. He says, in that uproar of buying and selling and bargaining and auctioneering, prayer was impossible. Those who sought God's presence were being debarred from it from the very people of God's house. Because the whole court of the Gentiles was being used for mercenary business instead of missionary business, which is what it was designed for. The people were actually being prevented from having access to the Lord and to be able to experience them for himself. What's interesting is that word for prayer also carries the idea of, more specifically, it has the idea of sanctuary. So Jesus is saying, my house shall be a place of refuge and of sanctuary for people to come. And yet this religious flea market that the Jews had set up was actually turning Gentiles away from rather than drawing them to the witness of Israel about the Lord. And just the thought of that should make our blood boil and break our hearts in the same way that it did for Jesus. And yet, so much of the church today, we see exactly these same things still happening. There's so much of what the, the church, you know, within Christendom today, what, even in sincerity, people are doing things that are crowding out and that are cluttering up the ability for people who are really sincerely seeking the Lord to come. You think about churches with these really strict church membership requirements or these, you know, stifling religious legalism. You've got all that on one end of the spectrum, but then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got the stripping down and the oversimplifying, or the dumbing down, right? The oversimplifying of the worship service, right? We want to turn this into Sunday morning light because we really want to appeal to and we don't want to possibly offend anyone that might come. And so we're going to relegate the actual teaching of the scriptures only to the midweek studies, right? Once you're kind of moving into the, more the inner circle of the life of the church, then you get to hear the Bible taught, right? And of course, all of those things aren't even mentioning the things that we also see within the church, you know, these tragic abuses of finances and abuses of power and the religious hypocrisy, which we so often see from these celebrity religious rock star church leaders. All of these things, what? They're just driving unbelievers further and further away from the Lord. I have to tell you, here at Calvary Mountain View, the reason that we don't receive an offering during the service is not because it's not biblical, but it's because this is an area where there has been so much abuse in the name of religion. And we hear from so many people who come to visit, they say, yeah, I kept waiting for the plate to get passed, and then it never came. Maybe this place is different. Now that's great, 
But I have to say, sometimes I wonder if we're doing a disservice to you guys as believers because we don't focus more on giving. Because it is a very important part. It's actually a critical part of our growth as disciples and followers of Jesus. We should be giving. The New Testament teaches we should be giving regularly and consistently and liberally and joyfully. Right? If you want information about what we believe about giving, there, there's a paper you can pick up on the info table. But, but we don't do that because we don't want to keep people, especially unbelieving people, we don't want to stumble them after they get here. Because just like the temple was supposed to have been in Jesus' time, the church needs to be a place today, first and foremost, that place of sanctuary, that place of refuge, that place of prayer. And it's only as we get rid of all of this stuff, all of the churchy stuff that's crowding out and cluttering up the temple courts, it's only when we really allow the Lord to toss over some tables and to drive out some of that sketchy stuff only then are we going to be able to provide for people and minister to people the way that the Lord wants us to, the way that he did. Because here's something that Matthew records in his account, and it's a very interesting detail that I want to look at because I wanted to run extra over today. But it's something I think is so super significant, I think it's worth noting. Because just as soon as the temple courts had been cleared by Jesus, here's what Matthew tells us. He says, then the blind and lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. So understand what, so this bold move of Jesus here in clearing out the courts what it did is it made it possible for the most needy to get to him and to be healed. Because understand this, even as Jews, the blind and the lame, they were restricted only to that outer court of the Gentiles. Because in the minds of the religious leaders, those kind of deformities just didn't fit in with the holiness of the temple. So they couldn't get closer to the temple. They certainly couldn't get close to the altar to make a sacrifice. And yet after Jesus purges the court of the Gentiles and gets rid of all the merchants and robbers, then he was able to minister to the outcasts who could now come and assemble there. What Jesus did by clearing this out is he enabled them access to God. That's what Jesus does. And that's exactly what we are called to do as well. And you guys have all heard the story. I think it was even in the, the movie. But that familiar story of Pastor Chuck in the early days of Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. And the church elders were starting to complain because all of the barefoot hippie kids were coming in. And they were soiling the carpet in the sanctuary. Right? Their dirty feet would come in and they were making a mess of the new carpet. And Pastor Chuck's response was... Well, let's just tear the carpet out then. Tear the carpet out and bring the kids in. And we should always be working to make Jesus more accessible to people, not less. We should always be working to take obstacles out of the way and not set them up. Right? We should always be trying to clear a path to Jesus for people. And most certainly, we do not want it to be our own 
personal hypocrisy in our life that gets in the way. We got to get rid of that stuff because it's only as we do, right? As we work to clear away all of that junk, then we're now, now we're giving Jesus the space to do what he does. Now we're giving him the space to really to touch and, and to heal and to manifest that delivering power of his grace in the context of his compassion and his mercy, right? So not only the temple then, but we as the church today, we are supposed to be a place where people can seek out the Lord and pray to the Lord and where they can really find sanctuary and refuge in the Lord, but it has to be a place where there's room for them to be helped by the Lord as he can release that power into their lives. And so we see that the blind and the lame are coming to him. He's healing them, right? That's us. We who have been spiritually blind, we who've been walking through life lame because of our sin, now we're able to come into this place. We're able to hear the word and study the scriptures and receive that help and that healing, right? The, the needy should always feel welcome. They should always find the kind of help that they need. There should be this power that's available and accessible in God's house without a bunch of clutter in the courts, right? That's the power of God working to change the lives of broken people, right? Now, who could argue with that, we ask? Well, we're going to see exactly who, because unfortunately, not everybody was quite as happy with that idea. It says in verse 18 that the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. So here's Jesus. He's healing broken people, right? People are praising God in the temple courts. And the response of these men who were representing God before all of Israel is that they want to kill him for it. So the application, write this down, don't plot to kill Jesus just because he's bad for your business, okay? Here, I do want to mention something interesting here. Notice that Mark mentions in this verse, he talks about the chief priests and the scribes together. And that's significant because this is the very first time in any of the three synoptic gospel where these two groups are mentioned together. Because the scribes were all Pharisees who couldn't stand the Sadducees. And the chief priests were all Sadducees who couldn't stand the Pharisees. But now they are all together singing kumbaya because they have a common enemy. Right, so here's Jesus always bringing people together, right? That's what Jesus does. Right, not only had the people received him as Messiah, but now he comes in and he shuts down their bazaar, right? And he's claiming to have more authority there in their house than they do. So there's this animosity now that's been kicked off and we're going to see it's going to grow to a fever pitch as we move forward in this chapter and they're really and I think next week they're really going to start to confront him and yet for now it says in verse 19 that when evening had come he went out of the city and so back to Bethany for the night now in the morning verse 20 so verse 20 now brings us to Tuesday morning 
this is going to be the most busy day of the week. And, and of course, we're not going to look at it all today. But it says, in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Peter here in Mark's account just points out that they see this withered tree. But Matthew records that when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon, right? How did something that should have taken weeks happen so fast just overnight? So Peter calls attention to it. The disciples then ask about it. But understand, they are not asking about the fig tree as a type of Israel. They're not asking about the fig tree as a sign. They're not asking about it specifically as any kind of a moral lesson because the disciples haven't yet sat through that sermon like you guys are having to sit through it right now. Bless your hearts. What the disciples are simply asking here is, Lord, the power that it took to do something like this, we have never seen anything like that. And so watch Jesus next. He's going to respond to them in the context of what they asked. Verse 22 says that Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. Right? Now, it sounds a little out of place, and yet Jesus is answering the question that they asked. They asked, how did this happen? They didn't ask, why did this happen? Right? The why is something that they were not ready for at this point. Of course, the disciples would put all the pieces together about the fig tree and it picturing the spiritual state of Israel. They would put all of that picture together later after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, as the Holy Spirit would come in and give them that revelation. But for now, he answers the question that they asked and he takes this as an opportunity to talk to them about the extreme importance of their faith and the, the exercising of faith filled prayer as the source of their power. Remember, at this point, Jesus has just a few more days with them, right? So this is crunch time in so many ways, and he needs to specifically communicate these things to them. First and foremost, he says, have faith in God. That is the root of all of this. That is the root of our fruit as disciples. It's our faith in God. You guys see what I did there with the root and the fruit and the tree and the withering and okay what was important for them to understand here is that this miracle was just the result of prayer made in faith that was born out of a close and intimate connection with the father right faith in him and him alone and what Jesus wanted them to understand was that they could also have this kind of faith if they simply trusted in the Lord and went to him with these things, right? So Jesus says, he says it, notice he says, this is not a suggestion what Jesus says. This is an imperative, right? It's a command. He says what? Have faith in God. It's the present imperative. You need to do this constantly and continually. Actually, what he literally says is that you must constantly be having faith in God. It's a lifestyle. You have to constantly be exercising faith that rests solely on the very person and nature of God and not, we know now, 
right? Not in all the trimmings and the trappings of some religious system that has become dead and fruitless and is being withered away from the root. And then he goes on in our last verses to describe what this kind of faith looks like or the kind of things that this kind of faith can accomplish in and through the life of a believer. In verse 23, he says, For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will receive them. Wow. So Jesus is describing the most faith-filled, dynamic prayer life ever. This is a prayer life that moves mountains. It has what it asks. It believes that it receives from God. This is some truly shocking stuff. And because of that, many people have misunderstood and misconstrued what Jesus is saying here. One false conclusion is that if we just believe it enough... Right? If we mentally envision something that we want enough, that it will be ours. And yet Jesus rejects this kind of nonsense. Right, The whole idea of speaking your dreams into existence, I'm sorry, but that's a New Age fantasy. That's not a biblical teaching. Now, another false conclusion is to think that Jesus is giving us a blank check. It's a way to get whatever we want and to pursue our own passions. But Jesus is not promising here that if we pray hard enough or that if we believe hard enough for that Lambo in the driveway, that somehow God is going to be obligated to provide it for us. You laughed because it's foolish. It simply doesn't work that way. So here's the reason why neither of those approaches could possibly be right is because they don't take into account who Jesus is talking to here. He is dealing with his closest disciples. These men who he has just said to have faith in God, their entire lives, he knew, were about to be focused in the direction of his kingdom. They will all ultimately give their lives just as Jesus would for the kingdom. And Jesus knew that when their hearts were pure and they were squarely aimed at God's glory, that they could pray in absolute power just like we can today. Trust me, these men never understood what Jesus said here as some sort of means towards wealth or power or status or ease. What they understood Jesus' words was that it was a way to have power of God joined them on that mission of God. So really, when we read what Jesus pictures here, it's a beautiful picture of a fruitful disciple who moves mountains for the kingdom. And no, Jesus is not talking about a literal mountain into a literal sea. There is no point in casting a literal mountain into a literal sea. Moving a mountain was simply a common idiom that was used by the rabbis. And what it talked about was removing an obstacle that was in your path. So what Jesus is really doing is he's highlighting all of these mountain-like issues that were going to hinder God's kingdom from being advanced, both in and through our lives. And every one of us has come up against 
mountain-like sins in our lives. We've encountered mountain-like obstacles, right? Every sincere servant of Christ has dealt with mountain-sized limitations. But for all of them, what we do if we want to be fruitful, we bring them to God in confident prayer to get that mountain out of the way. We bring God this immovable mountain and we plead with his help to move it out of our path so that we can move forward both in and for the kingdom. And we do it simply believing that he will do it. And it's the cross of Jesus Christ that gives us the faith and the confidence to believe that. It's the cross of Christ that gives us the confidence in our mountain-moving prayers being answered. Because what did Paul say at the end of Romans 8? He said that he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? These verses, this is an incredible kind of a reality that Jesus is promising us here. Right, This faith-filled, mountain-moving kind of intimacy with the Father and fruitfulness with the kingdom. Right, But he finishes it. I know I said those were our last verses. These are actually our last verses. Honest mistake, really. He finishes it, or, or false hope, he finishes it with this final comment. This is the key that unlocks all of it. He says in verse 25, Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. So the state of the soul has everything to do with the prayer of faith. And Jesus is teaching us that a lack of faith isn't the only mountain-sized obstacle in the way of effective prayer. Because refusing to forgive or just holding on to bitterness can also be an incredible hindrance to our prayer. And the truth is that some of us know this reality all too well. But very often, a hard and unforgiving heart is much bigger than any mountain. Right? And it just stands there right in the way of any prayer being answered by God. You cannot possibly have a dynamic and fruitful prayer life if you are bound up by bitter unforgiveness. Now, doctrinally speaking, right? if you're in Christ, he's forgiven you. right? And logically, if he's forgiven you, isn't it unfair for you to withhold that very same forgiveness from anyone else? Right, Ephesians 4 says we're to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, what? Even as God in Christ forgave you. That's the doctrinal justification. But Jesus here taps into another purely practical reason for us to forgive. Because us keeping forgiveness from others, according to Jesus, keeps God's forgiveness from us. Now, this may not be talking about judicial forgiveness, right? Salvation kind of forgiveness for our sins. But it is certainly and it is absolutely talking in a very practical and a very experiential way 
that we will not experience the joy of grace if we refuse to simply extend that very same grace to others. Right? Bitterness will always bind us up. Don't let it happen. It is just not worth it. So, some intensely practical words for Jesus, right? From Jesus for these disciples and for us, right? Just on the power of prayer and the importance of faith and all of it strangely connected in the context of these two strange signs that signified judgment coming upon the people of Israel. And I think, 30 seconds as we close, when we look at the big picture, I think that we see this interesting picture developing because what a contrast between this barren, impotent state of this fig tree, right, picturing a dried up, withered away because of the inward corruption of all this religious tradition, all these temple courts that were cluttered up and keeping people from access to Jesus. And in contrast to all of that, on the other hand, Jesus is encouraging us with this life. He's calling us to this life of power and of fruitfulness based solely on our faith in God. Because that really is the root of all of our fruit as his disciples. Amen? Amen. So Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning and we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for the, the instruction that it gives to us, Lord, and the encouragement that it provides us. And so, Father, we pray that you would help these truths to find uh, deep root in our hearts, Lord. Clear away the, the rocks in the soil of our hearts, Lord, so that these truths can take root. And we pray that, you would, um, that we would just allow them to have their way in us, Lord. And we thank you and we praise you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.